Ah. Oh, it's... in your eye. Uh, so yes, anyway, it's nice to be back here again. I'm not sure if you, many of you remember me. I think I've spoken twice in the last couple of years. Um, my name is Sean Marston. I live in uh, West Auckland, um, and I'm the salesman for SIM. Actually, if my official title is Mobilization and Recruitment, but if I say salesman, then you're like, oh yeah, I know what a salesman does. So that's me. So SIM, for those who don't know, we're an international mission agency that uh, involved in long-term mission, short-term mission across Africa, Asia, South America. And my job is getting people connected to what is happening in the world. Um, and so I'm the person who originally um, connected with Jessica Cullen when she was looking to go overseas long-term, and I'm the one that journeyed with her, and I'm the person that got her to McKinney. Um, yeah, so that, that's a bit about uh, me, and I, like I said, in the last few years, I've come and I've spoken probably a couple of times, uh, including her commissioning service, which was, yeah, March last year, I think, February or something like that. Um, and normally when I'm speaking, and I'm speaking to you as a church, um, I have a focus on, on mission and talking about overseas mission and challenging people uh, about becoming uncomfortable. And in the past, I've talked about a few different things to do with that, and I just want to mention them briefly. Before I start wanting to paint a picture, probably more the reality of what life is like in Zambia and what life is like for Jessica and what she's having to go through to be there. Now, I have the privilege of being her connecting person in Sim New Zealand. So each of us are responsible to look after uh, different people overseas, which means I Zoom or have a WhatsApp chat with her about once every six weeks and just let her talk about what's going on. And so I get to have a first insight into the reality of her life, but the reality of also what she's dealing with personally, emotionally, but also spiritually. Um, but I've also had the privilege of going to McKinney a few years back, so I have an understanding of what it's like. So traditionally, when you talk about mission, I've talked about a few different things. Some of you might remember. So I, one of my time, I talked about New Zealand being a Pacific paradise. I don't even remember that, but we do. We live in a Pacific paradise, and I know we have things like earthquakes, and we have flooding, and we have a few social issues, but compared to the rest of the world, we are Pacific Paradise. And the world around us being Australia and you know, the Pacific Islands, it's sort of nice. Whereas a lot of the world where you live, there's always things going on that are hard. And so we do, we live in a fairly nice place, and you live in a fairly nice place called Blenheim, and that impacts the way you see the world when you live in a place that is generally nice, when you have most things you need. I also talked about that for a lot of churches I go to and people I talk to. When I talk about missions, 
Normally the one answer they have when I ask them, so what do you know about what your church does in the area of overseas mission? They normally say, people normally say, oh, we have a missions board somewhere. And I'm not sure that you do as a church. Normally a missions board means there's a board that's been sitting there for a few years and there's a map of the world and there's a few photos of the people that you, you know, you support. And then I'll ask, ask, like to ask people, so who are the names of the people on those boards? You know, because some people have missionaries that you're supporting that you might not have seen for five years. And you might, not, you might be newer to the church, you know, like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard their name. I don't know what they do. I also talked about the importance of mission because we have whole generations of young people leaving the church. And I can't know if you remember, but I told some scary statistics. They've been done two surveys. One was done about eight years ago, and one was done 10 years before that in Auckland, reckoning that 80% of 18 to 25-year-olds leave the church. And I'm guessing it's probably true here at Blenheim as well that a large number of a younger generation are leaving the church. And when I've been involved in some of the surveys and interviewing lots of young and not so young now who have left the church, they still often tell me that they have a faith, that they believe in Jesus, that they still pray, they still read their Bible, but they often say, I went to church for so many years, but at the end of the, I left because my end of the day, my faith didn't actually do anything. And I talked about that, how for a lot of young, if it doesn't change their lives, it doesn't change community, it doesn't change society. And often it's interesting, some of them said, well, I just left church because ultimately my faith was just nice. And when your faith is just nice, partly because you live in a nice country, where it's, when it's just nice, it's easy just to go, Oh, oh well. And the last thing I want to share is one thing I talked about also in this introduction is I talked to you about when I studied at Kerry, for some of you who are here. Now, I studied, I'm a Baptist pastor from way back. I went through Kerry Baptist College. Um, I actually did it with my wife. She was a good student who sat, sat at the front of the classes and I sat at the back. And I mucked around. Because to be honest, doing a degree in theology didn't interest me, but I wanted to do a a master's in development studies, which is what I ended up doing. But I do remember Theology 101. It was like an introduction to theology class. And the lecturer said at the time that it is always a human condition to always to go back to life where it's most comfortable. Because none of us like being uncomfortable. And I think I remember, I talked, to, I talked at one time and people responded that for me there's various levels about what that looks like. So it can be on a small scale. So for me, I have to have good coffee. And I think I mentioned that. And last time actually, I think someone bought me a coffee. I have, that's my weakness in life. I can sleep on anything, eat anything, be involved in anything. As long as I have two good coffees a day, it doesn't matter. Okay. That's my weakness. But there could be other things about what that looks like for other people. So it could be... Sorry, I'm on the wrong page. It could be... So that makes me uncomfortable, not getting good coffee. 
But for you, it could be that your favorite TV program is not on this week. Could be. You get annoyed. You get frustrated. Maybe it could be that you don't get your favorite parking spot. Maybe it is that you're listening to the radio, you're watching TV, and someone says some views that you do not agree with. You get uncomfortable. We don't like it, so we try and get away from it. Or maybe those things that make you feel uncomfortable are a bit larger. So maybe it's because there was flooding and your house got flooded. Maybe it's because the dairy around the corner got robbed and it makes you feel unsafe. Maybe there's changes in society happening, some social changes that we are uncomfortable with, that we don't agree with, that we don't like. Maybe it's someone close to you getting very sick. It makes you uncomfortable, it makes you angry, and you don't know what to do about it. For all of us, we're always trying to get back to where life is comfortable. And I think, increasingly, this has become part of our society. During lockdown, my wife found letters from her grandmother, who was alive during the Second World War, and had her second child during the Second World War while her husband was stationed overseas. So he went overseas, the baby was delivered, for the next year or two she raised a second child by herself. And so she wrote letters to him talking about her experience of trying to raise a child by herself while worrying about her husband. And so my, my, my wife found these letters from, from her mum gave them to her, and it made us realize, reading them, that actually our level of uncomfortableness during COVID or when our favorite TV program is not on or whatever it may be is marginal compared to what previous generations had to put up with with being uncomfortable. We really were. And I think we become nice and soft and, then, and we like to make sure we have that. Now, the reason I'm talking partly about the third one of being uncomfortable quite a lot is because the reality is Jessica Cullen continually lives in a life of being uncomfortable her whole time in Zambia. And I want to talk about what that looks like today. Because her life, she loves what she's doing, but it's very hard. She's confronted medically all the time. She's confronted with pain and suffering and not being able to help as much as she could. She's confronted with sleeplessness, with women being battered by their husbands and trying to deal with it. She's been confronted all the time with people asking for money. Her life is very uncomfortable all the time. And so I just want to also just show you a video now. This is not her video. I tried to get a video from her, but because of the internet in McKinney, there were like 10-second videos, and it became a bit of a mess. But anyway, this is a video of, someone she, of some people she works with just talking about, uh, I think it's a new ward being opened in McKinney, but it gives you a glimpse into the, the country and the needs. McKinney Hospital is a rural hospital. 
because that's where the need is. Bringing Mukingi out here where we can do most of the work becomes important because then the community sees it as their hospital and it's very trustworthy and so that's where they want to go. We are the only medical facility in many hour range and so if we weren't here patients would not be able to get medical or surgical care. Even statistics can show that numbers have been increasing year after year. We see more complicated cases, uh, greater numbers of patients come through and the current you know, two-room theater that we have can't hold all these cases. The operating theater project that we're doing started probably five to six years ago. And so it was a vision that we had and we've been working on it to increase our capacity to do surgeries, to perform them in a more sterile environment. This facility, we're kind of taking a lot of the same techniques that we use in Western construction, and we're applying that here in rural Africa. This type of facility will allow the doctors to do more sophisticated surgeries, just from the techniques that we're using in construction. To have three major operating rooms, one obstetrics and gyne, and one before general surgery, and the other one before orthopedics. And then it will have two minor rooms. The most important thing is it will have also ICU, finally at Mukinge, something that has never been there. Our list of operations a day has greatly increased. We continually pray for more anesthesia and surgeons to come. And if they do, we will need the place to operate because we do have the patients. We've got a greater need for space as well as more instruments, more specialized care that we can provide in theater. But you still need a theater table and you need theater lights, you need equipment that goes with that. And so going from two theater rooms now to five, we're going to increase what we need. There's a lot that we need for the theater that I probably couldn't even list, but we've got a great need. Mukinga has a lot of challenges, a lot of them but it is still thriving. Everyone does their part to make Mukingi what it is. Mukingi has a lot of struggles. And you look at it, it's up and down personnel, it's up and down financial needs. What's sustained us? It's the grace of God, isn't it? How can we overcome some of the hurdles that we face on a daily basis, or even a weekly basis? It's because God's there behind us. So I know that wasn't exactly about Jessica, and it was about an uh, ICU they were building, but I just want to show it to give you a glimpse of the reality of the context she's in. Now, if any of you are involved in, a, in medicine, even in New Zealand, you know that it can be a tough, um, tough career in terms of your time. So I was talking to uh, about two weeks ago to Jessica, uh, and because one of the doctors had left, and another one actually is back here in New Zealand, they were down to five doctors, which means that she is on call more. And I'm not sure if you know much about doctors, particularly at larger hospitals, but even New Zealand it works. Is in McKinney, she does her five days a week, or sometimes six, uh, but every second week she has to be on call for a night, which means... She may go home, but she's called and she has to work all night. Then she has to work the next day. So you could be up for 24 hours. And at the moment, she's doing that two nights a week. Okay, that's just the reality. 
And some nights she may you know, be asleep till three and get called in. You never know. And then I asked her, so tell me, what do your weekends look like? I said, because you must have, you know, days off. She goes, at the moment, every four weeks, you get one weekend off and two Saturdays. And then you're working the fourth weekend. I was like, that's only four... I went, that's only like four days a month. She goes, yeah. And I was like, wow. Now, I know I have friends who are doctors and surgeons in Auckland, and I know sometimes... It can be tough, and that's part of the reality. But for her, it's experiencing on top of the reality of that is the whole thing of what medicine looks like in a place like McKinney. It must be tough when you have all these skills and these training and you've learned to help people as a, as a doctor, but you're in a situation where because it's the wrong blood type's not available, because the right... Cause, and I think there was, towards the end of the video, there was an um, image of shelving with medicines on it, or very few medicines on it. They can't get hold of the medicines, or the machines are not working, and people, therefore, go through more pain, or they die. Now, as a doctor, that's very troubling, because you know what you could do, and what you should do, but you can't. And because of that, people are dying. Now, I, I, I have to admit, I sit here listening to her, because I asked her to tell me stories. It's a way of helping her to, to talk through. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, no, 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 I don't want to know about that. Because I'm like, I, I, how do you deal with that? And she talks about that you walk this fine line when you're a doctor overseas, because you want to still care. You want to still make sure that the things you're seeing overwhelm you, make you angry, make you upset. But she says you can also go to the other extreme of that where you just don't care anymore. She goes, but that's really bad. Because you get to a point where you don't care because you're overwhelmed, then you've lost yourself in the role. And so she walks this fine line, I guess all medical people do, like of trying to care, to be concerned, you can get upset but it doesn't overwhelm you because otherwise it just controls everything. So that's her context of being tired of trying to deal with the med, but also then work out what does it mean to be a... I have a little shake. Oh. So I feel privileged to get the chance to let her talk and hear what that's like. But she also, it challenges her own Christian faith, her own view of God, God's goodness, truths in the Bible, because she's in a context where it's not nice. And in some ways, talking to her, it actually reminds me of what life must be like there. And I've started to think that in terms of life in rural Zambia, it's probably similar to life for many people at the time of Jesus. And I have to be honest, none of us ever really think about that. 
I don't know about you, but I sort of grew up in the, in the church when younger, and you have these picture books of stories of the Bible, you know, and in some ways they're like a fairy tale, you know, Jesus' disciples walking down the road, and there's some trees, and then come to people, and Jesus talks to a person, you know, stuff like that. But we don't actually ever think about the reality of people's lifestyles back then. We just, can you think, oh yeah, yeah, there's a fisherman, and yeah, yeah they lived in some house of some sort, and uh, you know. But the reality is life back then that Jesus was is actually similar to rural Zambia where Jessica is placed. Because people are very, very poor. And poverty has an impact on medicine. Because, for instance, to get to the hospital, which is hours away, costs money. So usually it's the father's role in the house, because it's a very patriarch society still. They will decide when their wife or when one of their children goes to hospital. In the meantime, they will try other means. So they will approach the local witch doctor or the local medicine man or whatever to try and get something cheap to try and fix and solve or whatever it may be. And it's normally when things get desperate that the father may say, hey, we need to transport my daughter to the hospital. So often in the hospital, they end up dealing with things that are quite late in life, where there's not a lot they can do. And so that's what they experience in Zambia. But if you start to think about even at the time of Jesus, things were way worse than that. In the time of Jesus, if you had a medical issue you were in trouble. There's no clinics. There's no real hospitals. There's probably someone who practiced some sort of medicine, but it was just your life and the situation that happened to you. And so that's why a lot of the stories of Jesus, if you start looking through them, are actually about Jesus healing people. So just even, for instance, taking the book of Luke. Here are just some from the the book of Luke. So you have Luke 5. Jesus heals a man. The second part of Luke 5, Jesus heals a crippled man. In Luke 8, Jesus heals a dying girl and a sick woman. In Luke 14, Jesus heals a sick man. In Luke 17, Jesus heals 10 men with leprosy. And in Luke 18, Jesus heals a blind beggar. And I want to read that story to you. Because I have to change glasses. Um... From Luke 18, verse 35. When Jesus was coming close to Jericho, a blind man sat begging beside the road. The man heard the crowd walking by and asked him what was happening. Some people told him that Jesus from Nazareth was passing by. So the blind man shouted, Jesus, son of David! Have pity on me. The people who were going along with Jesus told the man to be quiet. But he shouted even louder. Son of David, have pity on me. Jesus stopped and told some people to bring the blind man over to him. When the blind man was getting near, Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he answered. Jesus replied, Look and you will see. Your eyes are healed because of your faith. Right away the man could see and he went with Jesus and started thanking God. 
When the crowd saw what happened, they praised God. People who were sick back then, like I said, had no choice. You were either an outcast because you had leprosy or something else, or you died. And in Zambia, often that can be the case. Your, your, your choices are limited. And that's one thing I've experienced on visiting medical situations overseas, hospitals. In New Zealand, we have a backup, and a second backup, and a third backup and a fourth backup, and we have machines galore, and we have medicines, and we have specialists to help. In a place like where Jessica is, there's one backup. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, that's just reality. And in the time of Jesus, it was like that. There was no backup. And so sickness had a big impact on people. But let me read you what, I was, when I was researching this, just trying to find some idea of what it was like life for, for many people back then. This is what one person wrote. As in most agrarian societies, about 10% of the population was born into nobility and lived life lavishly. The remaining 90% worked the fields, growing grapes, olives, and grain, or raising sheep and goats. The people were subsistence farmers, raising one bag of food for themselves, and one for Herod or Caesar, whoever else was in power. Most people lived a precarious existence. I think it's safe to say that by our standards, injustice was built into the system. 10% at the top controlled virtually everything. While the rich prospered, the general population suffered. So the people at the time of Jesus were always in need. Whether it was food or whether it was healing, they were generally all in because that was their life. And I'm not sure how many of you here have ever been to a developing third world context or been to parts of rural parts where there's just not a lot and people live in huts and they're trying to grow food and if the rains don't come, then the food runs out, which is what happens in Zambia. And so even just to try and comprehend that, that that's also what it was like in the time of Jesus. There was a small group at the top who had the power and control, whatever. Everything else just tried to exist. So when a person like Jesus came along, they were drawn to him. Quite partly because he brought healing and he brought care, but he probably also brought equality for them. And so that's a bit what it's like in Zambia, like I said. And so Jessica lives her daily life trying to be in that context, but to also battle with what does it mean to be a Christian in there. You and I have strong faith and belief that Jesus is involved in our lives. Whether it's helping save a dog, or whether it's something like this, or whether it's something major, the sense of that God is involved in our life. But still a lot of stuff compared to what it's like in Zambia, I can assure you when I've been there, the Christians there probably actually have a lot more faith than you and I. They really do. With so little, they have this, this passion. They hold on to who God is and who Jesus is, and they have their, their belief and their prayer for him. But the outcomes 
and not always the right ones. People still die, and they shouldn't. And children still starve. So even at McKinney, there's two wards for children. One for normal children who break their legs and other stuff, and there's one for malnourished children. And in New Zealand, we would never comprehend that. <laughs> but Jessica does every day. And part of the reason I wanted to tell you that this morning is because in the past, SIM, 30, 40 years ago, would have said, thank you very much for Jessica. You can give it to us. Now also give us your money to support her and give us your prayers for her. We will look after her. Now things are totally different. And I talked about that a year or so ago at a commissioning. Now it's about partnership. It's about Jessica. It's about you as a sending church. It's about Sim New Zealand and it's about Sim Zambia. We're all now responsible. How can we look after her, support her, so she doesn't just exist and do her job, but she also thrives? And for me, I wanted to tell you a bit about this morning and try and connect it even to the realities, but also the time of Jesus, because part of your role as a church is how do you care for her? How do you pray for her, knowing her context, her situation? But even how much you're in contact with her. I have to admit, Jessica is not the best communicator. That's just a reality, and she tells me that all the time. But she's still part of your story, and that's what I said at commissioning. Her going is part of your story about how you as a church are engaged in the world. And so just even knowing some of the stuff, for me, I'm grateful that you have sent her, that you're supporting her, that, that it's part of who you are that you've sent her. But I also want to encourage you to continue to do so and to understand her context. Even go home and Google McKinney Hospital. Look at the videos, read stories of just the, the context around that. And that'll give you her context of where she is now. And surprisingly, like I said, how close it is to that at the time of Jesus. So I want to continue to thank you for your support for her. It is not just about, we're probably the more the facilitator to make it happen. <laughs> and I try and look after her and care for her. And she has pastoral care people in Sim Zambia who visit the hospital and look after them as well. But you're a big part of that as well. And I'm to encouraged to do that. Let me pray. Father, we want to admit that we like being comfortable. And we do not be like being challenged. We do not like things being uncomfortable in our life. We always want to be where it's nice. But Father, sometimes nice doesn't push us. It doesn't cause us to rely on you. Father, I pray for this church here that they may continue to be a support structure for Jessica. But also that they may also start to even recognize the context she's in. And understand the wider world in which her and other people are engaged with not just trying to help people practically, but also how can they live out their Christian life in that context? What does faith look like in that context, which is so different than ours? But I want to thank you for this church and pray can you encourage them in their connection with her and support of her, but just in their support of missions generally. Amen. Um, and the last thing, um, I don't know if anyone has, but... I also work for another organization called International Pool Fellowship.
and we're involved in doing medical work and aid development work. Uh, we have Nepalese on the ground working communities as a way of getting into communities that are otherwise quite closed in a country like Nepal. And one of the things I do is I ask people to bring along any, un, uh, any foreign currency or coins I've got sitting at home from travels, um, and I either exchange them or I sell them on Trade Me, and all the money goes towards our medical work. If you've bought any today, I appreciate that. Uh, just come and see me afterwards, give it to me. I will make wonderful use of it. Thank you. <laughs>